I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop. Well, I'm extremely honoured to be sitting in between two of my favourite writers, two absolutely wonderful writers, A.S. Byatt and Sace Noteboom. They know each other very well, and in fact, one of the reasons we're late is that they were just talking so much. (laughs) So I hope that they're going to continue what will be a wonderful conversation. Um, Sace Noteboom's most recent book is this marvellous book of stories, The Foxes Come at Night, A.S. Byatt's The Children's Book, Uh, but of course we will be talking about much more, I hope, than than that. Um, And without any more ado, I think I will just um, start, really, by by, um, perhaps asking Sace about um, his new stories and a particular theme that um, is undeniably and very powerfully present in each one of these extraordinary stories is death. It's it's very much about what happens to us at the end of our lives and how we feel about what happens to people we love and people we remember. So death and memory. I'm going to start you off in the, you know, with the big stuff. (laughs) Yes, well, I mean, uh, if you want to say something about death, you'd better do it when you're still alive. And, um, And I thought that was... That was what happened. I mean, I started on one story, and of course, at my age, your friends die, and some even much younger than you disappear, and people you have loved disappear, and it's simply a theme. Um, You have to deal with it, and you have to get some clarity about a few things. And then these stories seemed, I didn't do it on purpose, but they are, indeed I saw afterwards, as so often, uh, like somebody at my Dutch publisher house said, well, you know, in a way it is like a novel because it's one theme. And it's true. And then I, of course, started to be afraid that it would be monotonous. And, um, but I don't think it is, I hope. Well, it, I thought it was very far from monotonous. A, a and although it may sound gloomy to say that the prevailing theme in all these stories is death, the 
it's the it's the vivid life of the narrators and the and those who are remembering um, that makes the stories so vividly alive. And I suppose, in a way, your subject is that when you're thinking about the sadness of death, it makes you f feel alive more than more than otherwise. Antonia, is that something that you've um, um, that's fueled your writing? Um, I haven't. I don't know. I end up the last novel in the poppy fields um, by accident, really. I didn't set out to be about death. But um, I found this all Sace's writing has this quality of curiosity and precision and the glee with which he approaches finding out exactly how people die and what the survivors then feel about how the people died. It's balanced by a perfectly genuine grief for the people who are lost. And, um, I mean, this has puzzled me throughout all his writing because I read a page and I think to myself, um, yes, this is, this, is, this is wonderful. Then I think, why is it wonderful? Then I think, and I'm reading in translation, mind you, I think not a word of this could have been cut out and nothing could have been put in. And so, as a reader, I have this sort of appalling glee. As we, I mean, there's all sorts of violent deaths in this book, because violent deaths, peaceful deaths, distant mourning, and it, it visits all sorts of different countries um, and ends up, if, if one is allowed to say so, with an address to the living from the dead, which you did once before with that wonderful boat going down the river in South America. Mm -hmm. And, and the, the characters who were dead slowly desert the boat or disappear into nothing. Yes. Which but this, in this case, this was a risky thing to do. I mean, there's a story in the book called Paula, and it's about a group of people in Amsterdam that gamble together. And at a certain point, they go to a casino in France, and then one of them disappears. And that was a woman, and a young woman, and a very interesting woman. She disappears. And then we find in the sequel of the story, Paula Thu, she is actually dead. And now, I personally do not believe in that kind of afterlife. But I try to imagine how it would be if you were dead and you would still be able to say something. And this came about because the man in the story, they had an affair. And he is not at the end of his life, but he is done with the world, and he sort of withdraws from the world and sits there and has her photograph there and speaks to her and wonders if she hears him. He thinks not, but she does, but she cannot, of course, say it to him. And then she tells about how it is to be dead. And I found that very difficult to do because you're so on a risky territory. It might so soon turn into kitsch or anything. And um, what surprises her is that in death you're completely alone. I mean, because everybody has this idea that either you believe in heaven or you don't, or hell, but you will not be alone. You will be with many others. And the idea that you're totally alone and that none of your categories of time, of normal speech, you cannot say in five minutes, you cannot say long ago, you cannot say nothing, because all your categories have lost their validity. And that was a very difficult thing to do. And um, then people say, ah, do you yourself? No, I don't, but I try to imagine how. Well, I hope. It's also a little bit hilarious. 
<laughs> Sorry. Yes. And uh, I would hope that the, the humor in the book is also perceived by people. Um, it doesn't have to be a sad theme. Uh, all you want is clarity about it, because you, you, you see in actual life when you're approaching 80, you see friends die, and some die fantastically. In, uh, you think, oh, you know what, um, Marot, Marot, when, well, you know, they're very, you get intrigued by, by, by um, last words. And I checked on a few people, and two are fantastic. One was by Marot, who said, je ne savais pas que c'était si facile. <laughs> but worse, or better, was Claudel, uh, to explain, my wife and I made, my wife is a photographer, and we made a book called Tumbas, and we visited graves of poets all over the world. I mean, Robert Louis Stevenson in Samoa, and Kawabata in Japan, Neruda in Chile. We visited them everywhere, all of them, till the publisher, the German publisher, said, 80 is enough. <laughs> and <coughs> otherwise the books are going to be too expensive. But apparently it's too expensive to be published in England. But um, um, Claudel, so I was looking up Claudel and you get diplomat and ambassador to Peking. And then I got this strange thing saying, these are Claudel's last words. <laughs> and they should have been, according to his website, Doctor, est-ce que vous pensez vraiment que c'était la saucisse? Or to translate, Doctor, did you really think it was the sausage? Boom. Uh, My favorite one is, is told by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who suddenly calls me to remember it. Um, there's this elegant lady, very angrily dying, who says she isn't dying. And um, she produces a large fart. And she says, Femme qui pète ne meurt, ne meurt pas. <laughs> and immediately <Hey>. dies. <laughs> very good. I don't know why... I guess, why did that appeal to you so much? <laughs> well, did you feel immortal? <laughs> no, I didn't feel immortal. I felt maybe it doesn't matter so much. Um, I, do, I do, though, when I, I'm not, um, when I think about my own death, it is actually the solitude after that I'm afraid of, although I know it's irrational. Hmm. Because I agree with you, I don't think, I don't think there is anything after. Um, I don't think there well, is. Yeah. I don't know. I think you might also say, but maybe that's not the case, um, one has coped so much with solitude during life, one is maybe somehow trained. <laughs> and writers need solitude? Writers need a certain amount of solitude? Perhaps, it's, um, perhaps that's the, that's the thing that, that makes you both able to able to write as you do. And I spent the whole of my life fighting for rather short periods of solitude. And one of my recent friends is a Dane called Morten Kringelbach. And Morten studies the nature of happiness. He's a professor of psychiatry in Aarhus and in Oxford. And he does neuroscience about the nature of happiness. And he believes that happiness is being with other people in community. And I say, Morton, happiness is being totally alone and actually thinking the way you think when your brain is really working. And he obviously must do that because he's appallingly clever, but he can't see it. He sort of looks at me and I look at him and, um, and we go on our own ways. Um, 
happiness being subjective. <laughs> can, we, um, can we talk a little bit about the short story form? Um, Antonia, of course, you've written wonderful short stories as well as long novels. Um, and it is, it seems to me, a, a form that's in very, very good health at the moment. There's a lot of mm. wonderful stories being written. It had, a, it had a bad time for a decade or so, I think, the short story form. A lot of the places where writers publish short stories, some of the good magazines and so on, were suddenly not available. It was certainly true in the English-speaking world. I don't know if it was your experience mm, as well, Sace. Yeah. Um, suddenly, it sort of seems to have a great resurgence. There's wonderful books of short stories being published, and some of the periodicals are going back to publishing them. It's in good health. Um, tell me about, I mean, talk to each other, rather, about the, the why you would choose a, the short form, um, how this, this book is, in a sense, almost linked by its themes. Um, is it a very different experience for you? Um, well, the story of my very first short story is apposite. Is it precisely apposite at this moment? Because, um, well, it began with an experience that was rather like... Um, Henry James's Venetian novel. I, I lose names these days. Um, the Wings of the Dove. I went to see a surgeon, and I was sort of laughing at him, and he said, you will come into hospital. I need to do an operation. And I said, well, I, I can come. I can't come before September. And he said, you will come next week. <laughs> and I walked out onto his front doorstep, and I thought, he's, he's telling me I'm dying. Which he was, in fact, because I, said, I then said, what is it, what is it? And he told me. Um, I mean, anyone here can see I'm not dead. So the <laughs> story didn't end like that. But the next thought I had was, I had better learn to write something short. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had been writing very long things, because actually those are easier to write if you're sort of surrounded by small children and problems and teaching. You can keep a long thread going easier than finishing a short story. Um, so then I walked along the street, and there were a lot of placards saying, famous writer, dead. So I bought the Evening Standard, and it was the day that E.M. Forster died, who, of course, was a great short story writer. So I walked into the London Library and started writing a short story called On the Day That E.M. Forster Died, um, which was my first short story, and is an largely entirely true story and anybody can see reading it that it's actually a story written by somebody whose natural genre is the long novel. Um, after that I got better at it because I got really excited by being able to see the end when you're at the beginning which is somehow it makes you slightly drunk with pleasure and so I enjoy writing short stories. Drunk with pleasure? No. Oh, yes. <laughs> Often? Um, and most days? <laughs> well, you see, at least, um, if you write a longer novel, I don't write novels as long as Antonia's, but um, there's a greater pleasure, I would say, writing a novel because you're with your figures for a longer time. And, and you don't have, with a short story, what I have with a novel, let's say, and my novels are not long, um, this terrible feeling that uh, they have left you. Short story, you don't have it as much as that. I mean, that they have really left you and that you're out there and, and you have to find new people to, to speak about. It's a bit like being dead, according to Cesar Notabom, <laughs> being well, without the novel. It is, in fact. It's a sort of sense of... 
Yes. Being abandoned. And, 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 you know, I wrote one story in, in the following story. There is the moment where the writer is sitting with his manuscript and the people in it at his desk in a hotel in Rome. And then somebody phones and wants that story. And for a reason, it's too long now to explain, he thinks he's not going to give that story. It's for a certain price. And he destroys the manuscript there and then. And then in the next chapter of the book, the protagonists go on living, you know. Um, so that may have been an unconscious idea to have them still around you. But in the book, um, there is this thing about plot, which I'm interested in, that if somebody drinks himself to death, as Heinz does in that story, and then you know, there is, is, does this story have a plot? No, there is no plot. The plot is that he will die at the end. But that's not the plot. That's drama, and it, because it's real. And then they muse on this, that how horrible it is that if you have a real-life drama, which could take years, and you can put it in a book, and you would read it in two days, or you go to a two-hour film, and you see real drama, this... Yeah, how do you say it with cooking? You reduce. reduce. This form of reducing is somehow to one of the people looking at the film, being very moved by the film, and she says, but this is insupportable that things could be reduced into an art form where you would need a whole life to live this plot. Like somebody who drinks for 20 years, and in the end, of course, alcohol will get him. And um, is that a plot or is that life? That's life. Um Yes, but when you put it in a story, it suddenly looks like a plot. Yes, it does. It, it, uh, I'm distracted by your reference to the cinema because I can never believe it in the cinema when people fall in love with each other because <laughs> they do it so fast and they're at the next stage on the next shot and actually it might have taken them months or years to get to the next stage. It does terribly compress and it isn't a question of art. It's often a question of um, narrative incompetence, I think. Um, what I found about the short story is that I don't think I almost ever love the people. It's, I don't write my short stories for the people. I write them for the language. And I used a long time ago to say writing a short story is, quite, is closer to writing a poem than to writing a novel. But you are also a poet. But if you get a word or a sentence wrong in a short story, you somehow destroyed the whole fabric. Whereas, you, you, actually, if you write great long novels like me, A, you know you will be skipped. I always tell my readers they have an absolute right to skip anything. And I rather hope they will come back and read that bit next time and skip some other bit if they come back at all. With a short story, if you write something skippable, you've killed the reader. The reader wanders off. Um, and what I in the period we were talking about when short stories were sort of dying, it was a sense of them all being the same that made me stop reading them, a sense that I knew what sort of story they were quite early on. And in a sense, I didn't need to finish them because there would be an epiphany. I hate the word epiphany. Um, I think creative writing classes are still teaching people that short stories require an epiphany. And as Sace has just said about somebody dying of alcoholism, an epiphany is not what you're going to get. Yeah. Um, but... Um, I, I judge the Sunday Times short story prize this year and last year. And the variety of stories we got in 
this year was considerably greater than last year. And last year was considerably greater, I think, than we expected. And they were also, and, and they, the other good thing about them was that they had twists in the plot. Because I forget who it was that said, you know, a short story can only have one idea. That's rubbish. They can go round corners and sideways and... <laughs> but the idea of the reader skipping, I'd rather skip for him. <laughs> You'd rather skip? For him or her. I mean, um, I don't want them to skip something. But they so will. So I avoid... I, as I told you before, I told you this anecdote that once I was a friend, befriended Mary McCarthy, and, um, and she knew a few Dutch writers, and I was complaining because for long years I didn't write any novel. And um, I traveled instead and wrote travel books. But then I would say to her, now listen, Mulish has published a 600-page novel, and Hugo Plaus has published an 800-page novel. Hmm. And then Mary would look at me and say, says, you stay small. <laughs> and somehow this has always remained there. And I think the only long novel that I've written is the, the novel that sort of prescribed itself to be long, which is about the situation in 89 in Germany, in Berlin. But for the rest, I'd rather avoid the pieces that somebody would skip. Um, of course, you leave the reader in that case much more freedom, which they seem to appreciate, but um, I would like to take that away from them. Well, I think, I mean, I think you do take it away from them. I don't think I've ever, unless I was falling asleep very, very late at night, I don't think I've ever skipped anything you've written. Mm, okay. um, on the other hand, skipping is so natural to human beings. It's not that I think that I write unnecessary stuff. Um, I get very, very angry if editors try to cut out things out of my books because they are very carefully planned in and they relate to various other bits of the book. And if you take that bit out, and my usual analogy is a piece of knitting, you cut that stitch out and you think you don't need it and you find the whole thing just shriveling apart in all directions. But I, I don't know. If you write a, a sort of four, 500-page book, Nobody, people are either going to read it so slowly that they've forgotten quite long chunks, or they're going to read it so fast that they skip. And the thing you really most secretly hope for is that they will reread it. And the letters I most love from readers are those who say, when I finished it, I just picked it up and started again. And, and if anybody does that, you feel sort of totally happy. One said, I, was, I dropped it in the bath and was unable <laughs> <laughs> to continue. Well, uh, I once, I would think, forced the reader to do just that because the last phrase of that short book was, and then I told her the following story. And then you have to start all over again because the following story <laughs> is what you have just read. So uh, I made the book circular and, well, you hope it works, that kind of thing. <laughs> So, so it's never-ending. You can never stop. Uh, <laughs> yes. That would be the ideal thing. <laughs> and then there's another um, of the many things that unite um, your works or that you have in common is that you're both very, very interested in and attuned to the visual arts. And um, Cezanne has just produced a beautiful book on Zulburan. And Antonia, of course, has written brilliantly about... 
Matisse, among other painters, and about color and about the, the actual way in which people see art. Um, is it something that runs through all your work, or is it something that you, do you, do you feel that when you're writing about a painter that's something rather separate, more critical, or is it something that informs all of it? Yeah. I'm not sure I've ever written about a painter, maybe in one of my first books, but no, I, I keep these things, I would say, apart. To write about Zulbaran, who is, because I'm, part of my life is Spain, and I wrote a book on Spain and Spanish art. And Zorbaran is one of my strange heroes. Uh, he's a mystic to me. And these images are so strong. And um, I've been following Zorbaran in Spain, in Seville, and in Guadalupe, and everywhere where he is. But then there was this exhibition here in uh, London, The Sacred Made Real. Mm. And there, there were only a few Zorbarans, but they had the connection with sculpture of the same period, with uh, the things you have seen in the Sculpture Museum in Valladolid. Uh, the, uh, I mean, I couldn't escape writing a long essay on it, and the Germans made it into, I think, a beautiful book. Mm. Yeah. But, uh, but Antonia writes on Van Gogh mm. and on Matisse, mm. and then make short stories connected to Matisse and all that. I don't think I've done that, but... Um, I think it's admirable if somebody else does. <laughs> it was my French translator who noticed that there was Matisse in the a lot of the short stories. And being French, he oh, would. So you didn't do it deliberately? No, he did it. He said, I'm going to put together a little book of your short stories about Matisse. And Matisse was at that stage... I, I, I tend to have a touchstone of what I can't do. And Sace is a musician as well as being a person who understands the visual arts. Music is not in my soul. There is no musical structure anywhere in, in me. And I think I overcompensate by using visual structures and indeed these days structures of things like pot and glass as the thing that isn't the structure of language. I think that's why <coughs> I keep putting colour in and sort of calling up what language can't do and trying to pretend it can do it. Well, that was a very clever thing for an editor to do. It's very rare that one hears such prayer. <laughs> very smart. <coughs> it's a, it's a he was a translator. Oh, he was a translator. And he was... And my editor in England was very angry. And she, in fact, she was calm and kind of... <coughs> I'm so sorry about this. Enough to make anyone cough. <laughs> May go on to another half hour. Yes. Something is stuck. I can whisper. Well, tell us um, a little more about um, your life in Spain and elsewhere. I think it's the island of Menorca, <coughs> isn't it? And we have it in common. Yes. Because we've, we've even met there. Um, but there are a lot of islands in your, in, in your work. Oh, and the first story is Venice, which, of course, is a very special sort of island. But uh, islands are a, a theme in your, in, in your new book, I think. Mm, not, not particularly? No, I wouldn't say so. But um, <coughs> I also, for reasons of um, uh, fear, I have transported some of the stories from, you know, some things have to do with real life. 
and then you better not leave the island intact in the book. You yeah. transport <laughs> the island to Italy, yes. where um, the people won't recognize themselves. Because islands are, by definition, insular. Yes, and, um, <laughs> and the people on them are also very insular. And um, No, no, but there is a sort of um, spirit between or under expatriates on islands, because then there is the, is the literal isolation. You know, after all, island in Italian means uh, isolated, isola. Mm -hmm. And um, so there is a concentration of humanity on those places. These people have quite often something in common. Mm -hmm. They are in a sort of extraordinary situation, mm -hmm. not being in their homeland, for example because I didn't write about Spanish people, I write about expatriates, be they Dutch or English. And that could be as well in Sardinia, as in Menorca, as in Mallorca, or any other islands. But Spanish life, you see, when I say Spain, um, Spain for me is Castilla and is Aragon, that is the Spanish mainland. So I've chosen to live far away from what I really think is Spain. So the island's not Spanish, they don't even speak Spanish. They speak a form of Catalan, which is called Menorcan or Menorquian. So in that sense, uh, I am technically in Spain, but I'm not in, from here, I'm not in Spain. Spain is in the heartland, the Meseta, the, and Spanish art is there and not on the islands. That's just isolation looked for being able to be able to walk. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And uh, it works. Tell about... <coughs> I'm still going to cough. In the Dutch Mountains. Tell where the Dutch Mountains are. There's a wonderful book he wrote called In the Dutch Mountains. It's no, longer, aren't any of. It's no longer in print <laughs> in this beautiful country. We will do um, something about that. Uh, it's one of my favorite books, I must admit. It's one but of mine, too. You know, that the idea, the freedom that a writer has is to give mountains to a country that doesn't have them. <laughs> and, um, and then to make that plausible. And I, I don't know if I ever told you, but a German friend of mine, when that book was just out, it came out in England, I don't know, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, and got a beautiful review by Bernard Levin. And so this German friend went to the bookshop, Harrods, he should have gone to the London book <laughs> review, because they, they would have known. But at Harrods, the man didn't know, and he said, no, no, I haven't heard about this book. And this German insisted, and Germans often do not know the difference between a review and criticism critic. So I said, yes, but this book got a beautiful critic. And 
of course, the man didn't understand him, and became rather impatient because he was insisting. He wanted to have that book, and we don't have it. And when he insisted, the man said, well, you go and look under mountaineering. So, <laughs> and, and then I thought, I've really succeeded. You know? <laughs> I've done it. I've given Holland mountains, and it will be on the mountaineering at Harrods. <laughs> and, um, but it was great fun, because I wanted, like all Dutchmen, of course, you know, this, it's a small country, though we have many people, far too many. And I wanted to make the country bigger. And there's one province hanging out, which is called Limburg, and I stretched it over the Alps and made Holland have the whole of the Balkan. <laughs> and with, of course, lots and lots of, of mountains in it. And in order to stress the fact that they would speak a more or less different dialect down there, I had introduced at certain little strategic points um, medieval Dutch, only on... In, in such a conjunction that people would immediately understand what I meant. And then my fabulous English translator, who died young, she found she was a teacher of Chaucer. And so she found fantastic equivalents. So it worked perfectly. And then the book was translated in Spanish by a friend of mine, a philosopher who had a great command of Dutch. He was an exile under Franco and being in Holland, he acquired Dutch and he could translate books. But he was ready quite soon. And I was astonished. And I said, well, Philippe, what did you do with the medieval words? And he said, what medieval words? <laughs> and so <laughs> these are risky things. But apparently, I had placed them in such a way that he had guessed the meaning and thought that that was it. But it wasn't. <laughs> well, I must say, um, my hat's off to um, the translator of this book. Yes, it's the really most nice. beautiful translation. Because not only do you forget from the first sentence that it is a translation, but as you say, it is. The, there's not a word out of place. It's marvelous. She's very. She's really very good, and I'm lucky with my translator, and I'm lucky with my publisher because the publisher, Mr. McElhouse, then comes. He ca in this case, he came to Germany. And then we go through it, and he wants to know what is really there. And then you try to explain. Languages are complicated, but you try to explain. And even at some point looked at the French translation in order to, because he has French and no Dutch. And you can explain an expression, but uh, it has to be precise. And I think, but she delivered the, the, the basis of it, and it's very, very good indeed. And she takes great trouble. Yes, it's, it's beautifully done. Um, in a minute, we'll uh, take some questions from the audience, but can I first ask you both what you're working on now? <coughs> if you don't mind being asked that. Um, long or short? Give us a clue. Oh, incredibly long. <laughs> okay. um, there are some short ones, like sort of planets going around the sun. Mm. And I've got several short ones, and I've got half of one that I've, I've got half a long short story that I can't think how to end, and I've had it about two or three years now. Um, it's about a monk in Tooting Beck, a 12th century monk who finds himself in a, an apartment in Tooting Beck. Um, and he's not visible, and he can't stand the geometry of these cubes of metal, meaning the refrigerator, and the instrument of torture, meaning the tin opener. Um, and 
he's very baffled about how he should have got there, and I can't get him out, but I will. Um, other than that, I'm writing a very long novel. I said to my publisher, I'm thinking of writing a novel about two women psychoanalysts who studied under Freud and hated each other. <laughs> and she, she, she said, okay. And then the FT, in fact, asked me to write something about surrealists and fashion. So I said to my publisher, it's just struck me as I might like to write a novel about surrealists. So she said that would be much better. She now claims she didn't say that. And, um, um, and then I realized I shall die. I cannot write a long novel about psychoanalysts and a long novel about surrealists, not possibly, before I shall die. Thus, I decided I shall put the psychoanalysts and the surrealists into the same novel. <laughs> Um, and it will start in the First World War, and it will go just after the Second World War. And I'm doing the research, which is, I read a psychoanalytic text followed by a surrealist text. And of course, they intertwine like that, because they're all about dreams and unreality and significance. And I'm at this lovely sort of stage where I haven't the slightest idea exactly what I'm going to do with it, except that English male psychoanalysts tended to ride to hounds. Now, you wouldn't have known that without having to do research. <laughs> and this sort of thing makes me very happy. I really enjoy finding things like that out. So I need now to put some hounds in somewhere. Um, so on the whole, if I had enough solitude and could solve the problem of my correspondence on my desk, I, I'm really quite happy. This is a wonderful insight into the creative process. <laughs> um, Hounds? Any hounds in your next book? No, no, but no? Uh, it's not uh, much worse or not much better, <laughs> however you look at it. I'm writing very short things that will combine into something. So I'm writing letters to Poseidon. Ah. Wow. Yes. And I don't get any answers, as you can imagine. <laughs> and um, I'm asking him things, you know, very normal things. Are they, are they emails or are they no 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 there are lots of there are lots of there are letters <laughs> and so for example I ask him do you despise us because we are mortal or are you jealous because we are allowed to die and you can't and things like that so of course you get no answers but mm, <laughs> then I've decided that from time to time I will give him not Twitter I don't do Twitter or tweet or whatever. But um, short, little, strange things that come my way, I'll tell him. And then he, make, he may think about them what he thinks. So, for example, in a French provincial paper, I found this, this small item, which I thought was absolutely marvelous. Um, a man had been living with a wife, and they never married. And they lived together for 30 years. And they were going to marry, but then they didn't. And they were going to marry, and then they didn't. And then she dies. And he f he's full of... This is a real story, by the way. So he's full of sorrow and regrets. And he goes to the mayor of this small French provincial town. And he says, can we do something about it? I have to stress this is a real story. So <laughs> the mayor says, yes, we can. You can bring something of her. And marry her dress or marry her shoes? He marries her hat. He marries her hat. Okay. It has happened. Yeah. And then, you know, the, the strange <laughs> coincidence that you, you always, I mean, we are very lucky sometimes, then you read something, just a little remark, Gerhard Scholem, who said, 
that in a hat, there is the head. And so it makes sense. So there he married a hat. And it really has happened. He went to the, to how do you call it, the register? Or the, 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 yes. Well, so, so I'm telling Poseidon from time to time, so about three or four items like that. And then I come back with a real letter and ask him other things about where he came from. How do you, and for example, I'm asking him, I'm trying to explain to him God. I mean, he is a God, but he's not God, though he is God. And I'm asking him how he feels about not being immortal in his back, if you see what I mean. He's, he's only immortal this way. He will live forever. He's immortal, he's God. But he's not, he's, he's born. So he was born. So he's not immortal Rondo all the way back. Okay. So, well, these are questions. These are big questions. <laughs> Now, I wonder if anybody in the audience has got a question that can come anywhere close to these questions. <laughs> we, we have got a few more minutes, and I'm sure that um, you will have some things to ask. Do we have a, a mic? We do have a mic. If anybody has anything that they would like to ask either of our authors, or indeed Poseidon, or anybody else, really. <laughs> Well, you see, now you've silenced everybody. No, no, no. <laughs> it shouldn't be. I wanted to ask about the festival, the Dedica festival, that Sace attended in Italy. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, that, that was a very nice festival, I can tell you. You can make an author very happy by dedicating two weeks to him. <laughs> and, um, and, and to tell you the truth, I had never heard about this. And then they told me that Paul Oster had done this. And I thought, well... He'd, because I'd never heard about the town either. So the town is called Pordenone, and it's about an hour from Venice, and a small industrial town. And I said, but what do they do? Well, the whole town will be reading your books, more or less. And, um, <laughs> and I must say, and then I, I called a German author that I know, Hans Magnus Enzinsberger, but they had told me that he had done it. And I asked him, I said, well, Hans Magnus, what is this? And he said, you must do it. You go in the beginning, then you go away, and you come back towards the end. But it's true, they, there will be every night there will be something. And um, so somebody, my book, uh, Roads to Santiago, some man made a musical program about it. Another evening they read poetry. And... Um, my novels have been translated in Italian. Some of my novels that are not in print in this country are in print in <laughs> Italian, and, uh, like in the Dutch mountain. And um, so it was a great fiesta, uh, the whole of it. And uh, you, know, you feel flattered, and you're happy, and the people were happy. It's a small town, but they were there. I mean, not all of them, I think, but... Um, Quite a lot of them. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, is this is this an annual event? I've never heard of it. I'm um, afraid. Yes. Well, they had, as far as I know, Nadim Gordimer. They had Ensensberger. They had Paul Oster. Um, at me, and I think they will go on. Um, I'm not sure if it's annual or or every two um, years. I think Hans Magnus said it was biennial. I biannual, think. Biannual. Yes. Um, Antonia, if I may call you Antonia, um, 
you said that the, the joy of writing the short story was you could see the end before, as you began. Do you mean to say that when you write a long novel, you don't see the end? How far do you plan? Um, I plan, I mean, this is, this is a question I always find hard to answer because, in a sense, I plan a long novel pretty completely before I start writing. And then it always changes within the bounds of the planning. And every now and then it changes worse than that. It turns out you've planned something that didn't happen. And writing six pages that actually didn't happen is a horrible feeling. Um, so I try to avoid that happening. I try to avoid writing it wrong. And when I was young, I wrote 21 drafts, and now I write two. But um, what I meant about the short story was really, not that you could see the end of the story, but you could see the end of the writing. You can sit down at the desk and you can think, you know, in two weeks' time, I shall have done this. Which, apart from my monk, who is stuck, um, um, he, doesn't, he doesn't like the shower either. He, it was very wrong for Cistercian monks to take hot baths. Um, so I was, he suddenly came back. Um, most of my short stories, I... I can feel exactly where I'm going and that I will get there within, you know, a few weeks or I would never have started. Um, and this shifts the pleasure to the language. You can sit there and you think there is a right word for this. And this is one of the most miraculous things about the human brain. You know there is a right word and you know you can't remember it and you don't know it. Um, and you know if you go on sitting there some, from somewhere, it will come. Um, and I love that feeling because all, on the whole, until fairly recently, it always has come. Um, and, and you don't, I mean, you don't dread the end of a short story either because the people in a, sh well, people in a short story by Sace have got a lot more life than the people in a short story by me because I never, I never get that attached to them. I move them around like things in a picture almost. Um, it's, it's really the string of the language. Um, yeah, I think, I think we've got to have a campaign, free the tooting back one. Liberate. It's interesting, though, because <laughs> I've never known the end of a novel that I did. Never, ever. I've never had to plot beforehand um, which stories you do. But I start from a general idea, like when the Berlin novel, I wanted to write something about history, the idea of history. And I've always been jealous of people like you who forehand know. And I remember being in Faulkner's house in Oxford, Mississippi, and on the wall that of his last novel, there was the complete planning, Monday, Tuesday, I mean, the Holy Week. And I thought, how fantastic that you just, you only have to fill in the novel. <laughs> it's, it's probably, probably not like that. But um, when I started the following story, I had no clue whatsoever where I was going. And I started with this man who sits there and doesn't know. And, and he ends. And later, when it was finished, and when I wrote that last line, and then he told her the following story, it was as if I'd all planted majestically, which is absolutely not the case. But I had feeling that I had jumped into the air, made the salto mortale, and come down on my feet. But it could have ended disastrously. And uh, 
If you think of Nabokov, who wrote all these cards and, and with the whole novel on it and then sort of shuffled them in each other and in the end it was a fantastic novel. I'm terribly jealous of all that. I can't do it. Have you ever um, written a novel that you couldn't finish and you've abandoned it? Um, can you always find a way? <laughs> well, I... <laughs> um, this is a book, again, that has not been published here. And I wrote it um, when I was very young. And um, I really didn't know. And so I had a writer who left a, an unfinished manuscript to another writer and saying, I can't do this, I'm sorry, commit suicide. I can't do this, you finish this book for me. So the other writer gets the, the manuscript and thinks, well, okay, where did he live in the last period of his life? Oh, there, I'll go there and meet the people that he met, etc. and I'm going to look at this manuscript. And then he discovers the manuscript is about the same problem. It's about a writer who's going to leave it to another writer. And so until the end, you know, like the famous nurse on the chocolate box. And he decides, that's the only way I could get out of this, to not finish the book of the other writer, end. <laughs> and, uh, and then when this poor other writer then finally is described that he commits suicide, later I realized that in that case I didn't have to do it myself. So I made the poor guy do that. <laughs> but that was the only, <laughs> and I yet finished the book. That's a clever way out. I was uh, going to ask about your um, views about what you would want. We've been talking about endings and death. Um, what, would you want people to finish your novels? How, how, how do you feel about work that's incomplete? Huh, interesting. Never thought of that. I don't think I would like anybody to finish my novel, no. There's a straight answer to that, isn't it? It's very difficult. I... <coughs> A month or two ago, I found a novel that I must clearly have written because it was in my handwriting, um, of which I have no memory at all, and I've always believed I had a very good memory. I don't think I want anyone to publish that, nor do I exactly want to burn it. I just want to put it in a box, which is where it is, and it, I can't even remember where it is now because it obviously bothered me a great deal. But, um, no, I wouldn't wish anyone to finish anything, and I wouldn't actually wish anyone to write a prequel or a sequel, because I do see a novel as a work of art which ought to be complete, more or less. Or, if it, I mean, if it, if it does have things moving out of it, they should be the other writer's own things and mm -hmm. not their attempt to deal with my thing. So I, um, I should... Well, I'd be dead, wouldn't I? I, w I wouldn't be able to be unhappy. But, uh, but, but Antonio, um, you know, Nabokov had said that the last thing he was working on should not be published, and yet his son has published it. What do you think of that? Um, I think if I were his son, I would not have published it. Mm -hmm. And who is the... But then you start thinking of Kafka... I mean, you always come to Kafka. He said, burn everything. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I am profoundly grateful everything was not burnt. Yes, but, but the Kafka things that were, thank God, not burnt were complete, most, quite mm -hmm. a lot of them. And this Nabokov book, by his own 
judgment was not at all finished and in, therefore should not be published. And I think he was right. Well, I, I would, I would, I don't know about right and wrong, but I certainly feel with Nabokov, and if he okay. was my father, I wouldn't publish his book, um, unless I found it 200% fascinating and felt that it was terrible to close people like you and me off from this book. Mm. Um, I mean, there might be a case when it was, what there was was wonderful and somehow was finished because he hadn't finished it. Uh, I don't think I have an absolute principle about no, this. No, but there were fragments, you see, the way he worked. So mm. his cards were there. So it's, it's, even as a book, it's fragments. It's, it's not just an unfinished book. Um, the people are so interested, aren't they, and particularly the academic industry that surrounds mm. publishers. They would um, read Nabokov's laundry lists if he ever made such things. Well, let them read the laundry list then. <laughs> At least they're finished, you know. Antonia, one of the books of yours that I most enjoyed was The Game, which I read when I was very, very young. I would like to reread it, but I think that also is that now out of print. How do you feel about that? No, it that? isn't. Oh, <laughs> I will reread it. How do you feel about that early work? Um, I am a writer that never rereads myself. Um, and my, my French translator who did the Matisse stories and is now unfortunately dead once held um, a sort of week of staff seminar on that novel, which I do remember, but I mostly remember the French talking about it. Um, I looked into it the other day because I was trying to check um, what I had done with the David Attenborough figure on the Amazon because, I, in a sense, I invented David Attenborough before he started doing it. I knew the television nature study was going to be the... No, no. <laughs> the, he might be amused, but I somehow knew that the figure of the television naturalist was going to be one of the important things of our time and put him into the Amazon, and a lot of television t people told me that's just simply not going to work. Um, um, about the emotions of the main characters, I think very little. Um, and it was overwritten, and there was too much Coleridge in it. It's just quite hard to put too much Coleridge into anything, but I did succeed. Too much what? Coleridge. Oh. I'm trying to remember it. Um, it's a novel slightly haunted by the academic I didn't want to be. I, I wanted to be a novelist, but at the time I wrote it, I was an academic who was afraid that I was an academic and not ever going to be a novelist because Dame Helen Gardner had told me that every young girl who was doing research in English wants to write a novel, and none of them can, she said very kindly. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, I, th I don't know if it stands up. You will have to see. So, so do you reread your earlier books? Not the earlier books. Um, but of course, you're forced to reread when a book is translated. If it's trans been translated in a language that you know, you want to check the translation, and then you're forced to read your former self. What I do sometimes, and I think it's totally ridiculous, if a book is just out, I keep reading it for about a week. And reading and reading, finding to the distress of my publisher um, little typos and things like that. But it's also. I've realized 
a sort of study, because in Germany, for example, my German translations, they are very good too, like this one. And you do a lot of evening reading from novels. This is a German tradition. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so you have to read it several times in order to be right on when you read in public from it. And then you, then you leave it, and then it's, it's really gone. It's uh, sad, but it's so. One of the odd things, in fact, about doing, as writers now do more and more publicity tours and book tours, and I go sort of reading in America, I go around the United States, you were reading from a book that you finished at exactly the moment when you should not be looking at it at all. You should be thinking about the next one. And this is a huge disruption to the writing life, even if it's very nice meeting all the interesting people in America. It, it's, it's quite distressing to have to keep thinking about a book when it should be, you should be clearing your brain cells out so you can put another one in. Because, you know, the mind is not infinitely elastic. And you've concentrated like that on that book. And it has to be gone. Or you, um, you can't really solve it. I think I've lost a lot of my life talking about the book I've finished and therefore not thinking about the book I should be writing. But then, on the other hand, there are writers who have written far, far too many books. Um, and I'm, I don't think I would have been one of those because I go so slowly. But um, it's, well, Do you find that a problem? We're the lucky recipients of the fact that you do this. <coughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm not so sure. I, I love reading to a public because you, you, you really see what you've done. Um, I don't mean forever, not 30 times or so, but like yesterday I had, or, or the day before, at the BBC interview, and they asked me to read a little piece which was about 20 lines, and I got stuck on the last line, and I immediately saw why, and I changed the order and then it was good, and they said so. And that wouldn't have happened if they hadn't forced me to read that particular passage. And this doesn't go on forever, but the, the reading of what you have done, let's say a year ago, and you go around reading in another language, you still learn, I would feel. No, I learn. I learn particularly from reading aloud. Um, you can tell the dead sentences, and every now and then there's a sentence that I, I, I started by saying I don't like being edited, but um, there are sentences that ought to go, and you can hear the audience feeling that's not a good sentence. Mm -hmm. We don't need that sentence. And so then I take them out for the next reading. Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.